our pillars here at New Community is shaping the city. And since I've returned from Scotland, I've been very interested in saying, what does it mean for us to shape our city? And I really believe that to get where God wants us to go, that we need to grow. We can't stay the same. And that applies to you and to you and to you and to myself. That is, that God wants to shape his city for good, God's good. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and God's a distant kind of idea and a thought, um, and you're wondering, can I be part of that? And the answer is yes, because I believe that as a community here, uh, as a church family, we're called to shape the city for God's good. Um, And you're welcome to be part of that as well. In fact, I think God wants to work in us and through us to bring his goodness out into our city. But I do believe this, that to get to where God wants us to be, we can't stay where we are. We need to grow. I wonder what thing God wants to grow in you so that you might be part of shaping his city, not at arm's length, but up close and far more personal in the years to come. So today, as we begin, I'm reminded of the words of an author, a Jesus follower. He's an author. He talks about formation of spiritual things. His name's Richard Foster. And he says these words, our, word is, our world is hungry for genuinely changed people. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. So over the next six weeks, what I would like to do, seven weeks, is talk about this theme called sacred space. And I don't want to skate along the edges. What I'd like to do is invite you to go a little deeper with me. Because over the next seven weeks, what I'd like to do is explore this theme about where God and humans actually meet. And this is jumping forward, and I don't know why. So, Jed, if you could fix that, that would be great. Just so I can go with my clicky here, that would be good. Um, So this idea of sacred space, and over the next seven weeks, um, what I want to do is try and keep on this particular, that one, that one, right there. That one, that's the one, that's the one. And I wonder if you could track with me. You mightn't be able to be here for the entire seven weeks, but what I'd love you to do is to listen to it on podcast. Um, Catch up and talk with someone who's been listening to these things because I believe that part of this is laying a foundation for where God wants us to be. That is, that we will be unable to influence and shape this city unless we truly believe that God is at work in us and he doesn't want to keep us just where we are. He wants to grow something deep in us so that we'll become and be the kind of people that he has shaped us and designed us to be. You know, um, we've called this sacred space, and I've termed it this, is because pretty much in our culture, we've lost all sacred space. We've lost the idea of something being special and unique and just individual other. In fact, the powers and the shapes and the forces of our narrative has been this idea of that we live in a secular world. That is that there's different powers and forces and voices that are present within our culture that have pretty much pushed out from the public space anything to do with what is that we would call a sacred space. Charles Taylor, a philosopher, he has talked about this. And uh, he talks about three ideas or three aspects of, of secularization. That is the, the pushing out of the public space, anything that is 
um, anything that is sacred. I'm not sure how I'm going to go with this this morning, but it's just jumping away, isn't it? It's doing its own thing. Um, the first nuance of sacred or secularization is that there used to be this delineation between what is sacred, that is, what is to do with the priests and the prophets, that special contours and space in our culture, and what is to do with the ordinary. That might be the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. That if you like, there's this sense in which there, there is this space that's been actually removed from it, that there's no delineation between the two. And I think I've lost this altogether right now, haven't I? Um, and, and so that's the first aspect that he talks about in the process of secularization. The second one, as it relates to um, not only spaces that have been delineated, but also that the public voice of belief has been removed from our culture. And that is that there's this, this world now in which anything that is public of, to do with belief and religious and spiritual has been pushed to the, if you like, the backyard, to the inner private space of your own life. You're allowed to have and hold those convictions, but you're most certainly not allowed to express them in the public space. He said that's the other force of, if you like, secularization. The other one, the third one that he focuses mostly upon is that he says the reality now for us in our culture, in our world, is that there's a whole different kind of contested space in which what you believe is just one of many things. There's ideologies out there and they're all present and they're all vying for your attention. And if you like, they're all equal. And the forces of this are so profound and so powerful that we don't even think about them. They're just embedded in us. That we live in a contested space now. There's no longer one idea. It's a contested world in which Jesus is just one among Many different things. He says the outcome of this is to, if you like, embed two convictions within us that we just eat, live, and breathe. The first one is that we live in a flat world. That is, that all there is is here and now. You and I are just simply material beings. We are just the product of processes, of natural processes. We are chemicals. We are simply nothing more than chemical realities, the byproduct of processes and realities that have taken place in our lives. And we live in a material world and we are just material beings. And that is all. If you like, in a flat world, he calls a disenchanted world. No longer do we attribute the blowing of the wind, if you like, to the, the spirit world that Joel was talking about. It all can be explained through natural processes. But the problem in this world is that it doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't answer and speak into the deepest recesses of our desires. I find it interesting that in this flat world, some of the most popular watched movies and that are on blockbusters right now are The Avengers. They don't have to do with sci-fi, but have to do, if you like, with the spirit world, with powers, with magic, with supernatural forces. Or Captain Marvel, that there's these people with supernatural powers. And in this world in which we live, there still seems to be an echo, a yearning, a longing for something more. Danny Frawley dies this week, a much-loved um, hero if you like, of the football world. And so on Friday night, there's a pause at the MCG and there's this sense of listening and discerning um, and, and marking a moment. But then we kind of don't know what to do with that. 
And the siren sounds and the game plays and we just continue to go on and on. What do we do with that? I once had a friend, I have a friend in in the UK and she said, I remember when Lady Di died. She said, I had this overwhelming sense of grief and loss. She said, something stirred in me in the morning straight after. What happened was that I, I decided that I'd go down to a florist shop and I'd buy some flowers and I'd go and place those flowers just down at Buckingham Palace. She said, I went down, there was only a few, I I realized that there were some other people who were there as well and that they had also gone ahead and placed some flowers outside of Buckingham Palace. She said, I placed mine there. And then in the days and the weeks that ensued, she said, I had no idea that it would so touch a raw nerve in our culture People were lining up in churches just to sign a registry book, just to acknowledge that they were part of something bigger than themselves. So they're trying to create their own, if you like, sacred space. The second thing which is embedded into our world is that, if you like, the second conviction of this secularization is that we believe in this word progress, that we are always on the upward and we are always going forward and that it's always getting better. And under our own steam, if you like, human beings can construct and we can make and we can design our own utopia and that we are heading forward. The problem with progress, though, is that many of us haven't lived through two world wars or a depression where things have collapsed around about us. We have a glitch in the stock market of 1% or 2%. We take a shudder, but we believe deep down in our heart right now that it's just going to correct itself and that we're always on the upward and we're always on the forward and it's always getting better, such as our technology. But in the last 10 years, we've seen the rise of nationalism. We've seen the forces of ideologies push people apart. And more than ever before, I think we've entered into not only just the private space, but all of a sudden ideas are being put forth in the public space and they're being contested. For many people, the progress that we thought was going to continue to happen has also been met with a feeling of the the world is not safe And, and, and it's fragile more than we anticipated. You see, in a secularized world, if you like, The belief in progress and the belief in being flat is not always met by our experience. And so over the next seven weeks, what I'd like to do is tell you another story. And the story doesn't begin with once upon a time. The story begins within the beginning. And I'm going to invite you to consider the story that's been lived in you or that's been embedded into you by the forces of secularization. And I'm going to ask you, which is the better story? Not only which is the more plausible one to live by, but which is the one that gives you more sense of hope? Which was the one that gives you more sense of life? Which is the one that gives you more sense of flourishing? Because deep down in our flat world, there seems to be an echo and a yearning and a longing that God speaks into. That's why I want to talk about sacred space. I want to talk about this idea. If you can flick that one forward, Jed, that'd be great. Sacred space, this idea that God wants to meet with human beings like you and I. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, please hear this. There is a God, I believe, and he is alive. And we are more than molecules. 
And no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, that he desires to dwell with you. And when the God, the creator being, dwells among human beings and in you, you will find life and you will flourish. The story starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You get this sense at the very beginning of this narrative in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis or beginnings, that God is is the one who is the source of actually bringing a sense of order out of the chaos and the darkness and the formless void. Because it's repeated seven times over again. God said and God saw and it was good. God said, let there be lights, and there was lights, and he divided light from the darkness, and he called the light daylight, and he called the darkness night, and it said there was, there was evening, and there was morning, and then there was the first day. There's this poetic narrative that rolls through, and you get this idea that God is constructing. He's the one who says, and he's the one who sees, and he's the one who determines what is good and ordered and wise and flourishing. And the story continues that on the sixth day, it says, as he was constructing and ordering this cosmos that was, if you like, non-ordered. He, he decides at the end of the sixth day to go ahead and speak of humankind. He said, so God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. For any ancient Near Eastern person, if they had have heard the story about this repetitive first day and second day and third day, they would have understood in that Near Eastern world that what was going on here is that the narrator was talking about the construction of a temple space, a sacred space where the God would come and dwell. If you like, that earth as it was being formed and being structured and being ordered was like, if you like, an earthly temple. And on the sixth day, when all of the construction had been undertaken, that he would go and put what everyone would do in the ancient world, go and put an image of the God in the middle of that space. And what he does is he creates and he has human beings, male and female, and he places them as his representatives and his priests into this temple space. And on the seventh day, it says he rests from all of his work, just like all of the gods in the near ancient world, that construct would have been. But this God, this God was the creator God. And on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And so we get this sense from the very beginning, the Genesis part of the Bible is that there is a God who wants to dwell amongst his humanity. He's not a God who's distant and fickle like the Greek gods. He's one who wants to be proximal and close Because it's in that space where he brings his wisdom and his order and his life. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the very next chapter, we discover, if you like, a a sequel, another portrait of this Genesis account. But it's no longer the world, but it's a particular place and a location. And it's a garden, a garden of delights, Eden, that's what it means. And it's in that space that God spoke to the man and the woman. He said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Because what these representatives, these human beings were to do was to continue on the creative work of God. Just as he had begun the ordering and discerning process, so too human beings were to continue that on. They were like to work 
and to keep it. If you like, they were to extend sacred space into all the world that still needed to be ordered because it was, if you like, non-ordered. And so telling it from a different angle realizes that he has a man, but he doesn't have a woman. The sense here is that the man cannot do everything available. He's not up to the task. Isn't that true? (laughs) We like to think we are. But there's a sense here in which God's saying you cannot do this alone. So he takes a woman from a rib and he makes her. This is not a story about origins and uh, and if you like how it came to be. If you like, this is not a story about beings and how they came into their origins, but rather it's a story about who we are. He doesn't form a woman from the head so that she would be over or the foot that she would be under, but from a rib so that together they would be side by side. And if you like, he speaks into this and the man says, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. It's a play on words. The woman is the uh, the Isha and the man is the Ish. And so it's his playing. Out of the Ish came the Isha and together they will, if you like, begin to work and they'll multiply and they'll be fruitful and they'll continue God's ordering process to keep and to work sacred space. And then it goes on in the book of Genesis and said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You see, Jesus' followers and people in the Hebrew Bible and Christians for all centuries have said that really the the core heart, if you like, of this multiplication is between male and female. And marriage is a sacred thing and there's this oneness that's bound together. This one fleshness. It's why when these things break apart, they're so painful. It's because from man and woman would come this multiplication. And if you like, the wise order, and wisdom of God would continue on as they continue their vocation of bringing sacred space to the world. And we discover that in the middle of it, there's one command God gives. He says this to the man and the woman. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit... You are sure to die. One command, one rule, one line in the sand. You think that's easy enough, isn't it? (laughs) Surely we can just do that one. He says there's two trees in the garden. One tree is designated wisdom. It's good and evil. What is this? It represents God's definition of what is good and evil and how the world will be ordered. And there's also a second tree, a tree of life representative of God's, if you like, life-giving power to this man and the woman and their progeny that will continue on. And he places them in the garden and he gives them a choice. Will you now determine what is right and wrong or good and evil and wise for yourselves or would you trust me and allow me to determine what's right and wrong and good and evil and wise for flourishing in life? And it seems that the very first chance that they have to be by themselves there's a subhuman creature enters the narrative and it's a serpent and for the first time it's not God who says and sees it's the serpent who says and he says did God really say that if you ate of this fruit that you would die really did he say that surely he's just holding back on you because he knows that when you eat of this fruit you will be just like him knowing good and evil 
And so for the first time, a woman, the woman sees, and she sees that it's good, the delight for the eyes, and it's delight for eating, and it's delightful for giving her knowledge and wisdom. And so she reaches, if you like, she, this word is shalach. She takes and she gives it to her husband. The two eat together. And in that very moment, they find that they are naked and they are shamed and they hide. They hide from each other and they hide from God. And so at the very beginning in this Genesis account, it's not one of origins trying to describe how we came to be, but who we came to be. That is, when human beings are left to make up decisions about where, what is wise and how do we determine what makes for a flourishing kind of life, we do this so badly. And if you like, we reach out and we say, God, I want to do things my way. And this is the, the whole basis that we have for understanding the nature of sin. It's not just breaking God's moral commands. It goes deeper than that. It's this sense in which inside of each one of us is a proclivity, a desire to say, I want to call the shots. God, I don't care who you are. I want to follow me. I want to trust me with my life because I can't trust you you don't have a flourishing life for me. You don't want to, me to really experience an abundant kind of life. I'm the best determiner of good and evil. And human beings are really bad at determining that. Look around us. Look around the world. Exploitation. There's always a me inside of it. The disparity between rich and poor. Because there's always human beings deciding what is right and wrong and good and evil. And when we do that, we typically do it really badly. Consciously or unconsciously, we've all said to God, get out of my life. I want to do things my way. I want to rule myself. I want to please myself. And I want to serve myself. And God says, have it your way. But I can't have any of that in my kingdom to come. That needs to be resolved and fixed if you want to be with me. We... Shalach. I love that story. Frodo Baggins talking to Gandalf. He has the ring of power. And it's giving him life, but it's also taking his life. And he flips it in his pocket and he rolls it in his hand. And there's a moment there where Gandalf realizes, I know what this ring is. He says to him, Bilbo, give me the ring. Bilbo says to him, yes, 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 I must give you the ring. Yes, yes, I'll give you the ring. Bilbo, give me the ring. And he reacts. You, 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 you just want this ring for yourself. You just want it to have it, all of its powers for yourself. And then he rises up big and strong and he says, Bilbo Baggins, what do you take me for? A cheap conjurer of tricks. I have not come to rob you. I've come to help you. But so often, we hide from God. We hide ashamed. So it says, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing good and evil. What if they were to reach out and eat from the tree of life? Then there would be no fixing of them, ever. 
And so the rest of the story in the entire Bible, once they are evicted from the sacred space and God's presence where there is eternal abundant life and his wisdom for flourishing, is trying to answer the question of how do human beings meet with God or rather how does God and his empowering presence meet with human beings to rectify their desire to shalak so that they might flourish under his life. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're hearing these words and you're wondering, can God really be trusted? Yet the heart of the message of the Bible is this sense in which there is a creator being who made you for himself and that he desires to dwell with you and that you will flourish best. You will experience life eternal and life in a richer sense here and now with him. Trusting in his goodness, trusting in his life. How do I know that? Is because if you jump forward from the writing of this story, for ancient times and the rise and falls of great empires and kings and queens, there comes one man. And he's observed by another man by the name of John. And John, experiencing the life of Jesus, having observed him, having seen him, having held him, having, having watched his miraculous events take place and seeing him risen from the dead, near the end of his life, he takes pen to parchment and he re-narrates and he writes the story about Jesus. And this is what he says. And it should be ringing in the ears of anyone who understands those origins, those creation, those Genesis accounts. For he writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wait a second, I thought God was the one who spoke and saw and said, but he's now attributing those very things to to this man he's calling the Word. Who is he? And he says he was with God in the beginning. And he says now through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And he's talking about Jesus. And he's saying I've come to see the man, the God man who's changed my life. And he's transforming people's lives. And I tell you, here's the one who has come to dwell amongst us. And here's the one who is changing people's lives. And I've come to see and believe that he is that word. He is the one who spoke and brought things into being. He is the one who said, let there be light and there was light. This is no ordinary man. This is someone spectacularly different to what we could ever imagine. And he goes on and he writes this, in him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness, however dark it gets, does not overcome it. Such is the force and the power of this man. He's taking and seeing Jesus and re-narrating the creation account and saying, in him is the one where heaven and earth meet. And he came to dwell amongst us and he will dwell in you. That's why you were made. Jesus was having a conversation with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you can't be doing the miraculous things you're doing unless you you come from God. 
And he says to him these words, very truly, I tell you, don't you like that? Very truly, kind of like truly, truly, like really listen in, like this is really, get this, this is important, just this is really, really, really. Really, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can experience the life of God. No one can experience the unseen world. No one can experience his rule and his reign and his wisdom unless he's born again. And Nicodemus says to him, how can someone be born when they are old? And Nicodemus asked and he says surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born that's just weird Jesus and Jesus responds to him with these words I'm telling you I'm telling you I am so telling you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water, maybe reference to washing of baptism and the spirit. You see flesh gives birth to flesh but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. He said, Nicodemus, it's like the wind outside. It blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you can see the effects of it. And so too is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, God didn't make human beings to just then depart from them and be away from them. He made them so that ultimately his presence might dwell in in them and among them. And he's saying, you can't see this, Nicodemus. It's invisible, but it is real. It's realer than real. And I tell you, when the wind blows upon someone's life of God's presence, there is change, just like Joel was talking about. And so he continues near the end of his book, and he has a conversation And he says this to his followers, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate, a helper. And he will be with you forever. And his name is the Spirit of Truth and he will lead you into truth about who Jesus is and how the world is and who God is and who you are. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But he's real. But you'll know him. For he lives with you, and he will be in you, giving you life, giving you wisdom, enabling change. Band's going to come in a moment. We're going to listen and have a space. That the God of the heavens might dwell in you. See, this clashes with our narrative of a secular world that's flat. It says progress is made purely by the means of human achievement. So you have to ask yourself, do I believe that? How am I going with my life? Is it all upward and onward? Living life for the next footy game, circus event, next thing to inoculate us from greater realities just so we get caught up in the busy, busy, can't even hear a still small voice or an echo because we've already said it's not there. Which story are you living by? Which narrative do you believe? It's not enough to just believe it 
We have to embody it. He will be in you. Last week, we were at the fireside with the guys. And I took a shovel and I took some coals and I put them out on the edge of the fireplace. And we kind of talked and the men shared about their encounters with God. Near the end of that time, I said, do you see the coals? See, when the coals are beside the fire and they're in the fire, they glow. How quickly when you take those coals and you place them out on the side, do they lose their fire and their spark and their warmth? As a younger man went to an older man one day, he was sitting by a fire and he said to him, why should I spend time with God? Why should I connect with his presence? Being an old wise man, he just took a coal from the embers and he just nudged it to the side of the heart as they were talking. Young man saw the coal grow cold. And then quietly he just nudged it back in. It connected again. And it glowed. It came alive. Young man was smart, he understood. I flourish best when I'm in the presence of God. Flourish best when I'm cultivating his presence. John writes these words, he says, I've written all these things so that you may believe and that that in believing you may have life in Jesus' name. I wonder if you're here this morning, haven't understood anything about God, Jesus is a bit of a distant idea and but you sense that there's something more, something different. He's calling you. He lived and he died and he rose for you. If you place your trust in his hands, you open up your life to him, I believe he will come and dwell with you. He will wash you clean. He will welcome you home. He will forgive. He will rescue you. He will save you. I wonder if you're here this morning, and this is probably the majority of people, it's been the busy, busy, and you've forgotten how do I cultivate sacred space in my own life? As we play, what I invite you to do is just open your hands and you spend time with God, the maker, and just say, would you speak to me? He will place things in your mind and your heart. He will tell you things about what you should do this week. He will nudge in you and tell you what you should be doing, things that you might need to put down, things that you might need to pick up, things that have been disappointing him, things that you know aren't right, but you need to, but you just haven't been trusting There's a space to cultivate. Maybe you're the ember out on the side and you want to come back in and it's a matter of saying, Jesus, fill me up afresh. But would you take this time? If you want to invite Jesus into your life, open up your hands and say, I don't fully understand everything about you, but would you come into my life? Forgive me. And he will. Maybe as you hear this song, just open your hands where you are, close your eyes. Say, God, would you speak to me afresh? Cultivate your presence in my life because that is where I flourish.